Tide in the Dream Time. Here's a short introduction. Um, the aptly titled Star of Bethlehem, uh, Neil Young song. Um, so what I want to talk about today, it's actually kind of astrology, but it's a couple of other things. Um, and we'll just let it rip. You know, I don't know if anybody knows this. I mean, this December 21st, there is a conjunction that will be visible in the night sky that is going to be a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which are the two biggest planets in our solar system. And, uh, you know, you know, Jupiter's a gas giant. Well, you know, the way that these are going to appear, it is going to appear like a giant star. And... Um, you're going to be able to see it low in the night sky, uh, early in the eve in the night of, of December 21st. It is a very rare, uh, it's very rare for these two planets to appear so close together. And I think the last time it happened was in 1266 and Kepler, uh, surmised that this is what the, uh, three magi saw in the New Testament when they knew that the king of the Jews was being born. And they estimate that this happened between 6 and 4 BC, uh, before 1266. So it's kind of a big deal, but it's a big deal and it's really interesting that it's happening on the uh, solstice because there is a symbol of this that most people have grown up with because the star on top of a Christmas tree is really a symbol of this Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. It's actually an astrological um, artifact of uh, an old, old story. And, you know, what's also really interesting is in the, the Three Magi, they were called Three Magi, but they were actually astrologers in the, in the birth story of Christ. And in the New Testament, they were changed to Magi from being astrologers because the church was uh, unsure that astrology was something that it wanted to sanction and thought that it was outside uh, the Christianity of the time. And uh, so they changed that they changed what the three wise men were, but they were actually astrologers. Um, so, you know, this makes me think, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much what it's going to mean in astrology. Although, you know, anybody who knows me thinks that, or knows that I think most people who call themselves astrologers don't really know much about astrology. 
Uh, and that's okay. But what it means, uh, I'm going to talk about a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about a little bit more of uh, Christmas and the, the equinox and the kind of, I hate to use this word, but it's true, kind of shamanic um, foundations of the Santa Claus myth that just give everybody something to think about during this holiday season uh, while they go through their normal holiday rituals, which won't be normal this year because of COVID. So maybe to um, conjure up a little bit more of that original spirit that is usually so identified with friends and family, we can really contemplate the origins of these myths, which I think will be really interesting. Okay, so as far as, yeah, the uh, star of Bethlehem that the three wise men sort of noticed and thought like, oh, the king of the Jews is being born. Most likely, more likely than not, it was the Ju a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction like we're having on December 21st, which is really rare. Um, and I think it was in Pisces. Um, and this time it's going to be in Aquarius. Now, what's really interesting about that is that the way Aquarian ages work is that uh, they kind of go backwards, meaning we're coming out of the last 2000 years, which was the age of Pisces, and it was the age of avatars. So uh, Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, they're all people who are intermediaries of God in a certain way. They have, they're humans, but they have these relationships with God and each, each one's different. Um, in the mythology, but the people who then became, you know, the followers of, of Buddha or Christ or Muhammad, they became the intermediaries behind the wisdom that they seemed to possess. The chiefs, the imams, the, you know, the, uh, um, you know, uh, the, you know, those, the, those sort of people I'm, I'm struggling here for a moment to uh, with my thoughts. But um, what we're moving into, this 2,000-year epoch that's coming to an end pretty much right now is into the age of Aquarius. And I've spoken about this before. Aquarius rules Uranus, and the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction is going to be in Aquarius after the seemingly the one that... that is in the uh, Christ birth story was in uh, Pisces. And with Pisces, like I said, there are intermediaries between the holy and regular people. You know, and that was usually priests, imams, rabbis, um, Buddhist clergy, Hindu clergy. But what the age of uh, Aquarius would seem to indicate what Aquarius is about. It's about democratization of information. So um, what it's basically saying is, is that this age is an age where there are no intermediaries, where everybody has access to this kind of universal wisdom, to this source wisdom. Um, nobody has more access to it than anybody else. And that's sort of the interesting shift that that would be that would you know it'd be a several hundred year transformation but i think religious systems will start to reflect this and you can kind of see that you know 
towards the tail end of the age of Pisces, sort of like new age thinking came in, but it really was like old age thinking. Um, and people thinking that they were onto something new, like astrology is part of this. Um, uh, you know, some systems are part of that. Yoga is a part of that. The, the way that yoga, um, developed in the West during the same time, um, and really took on a lot of the affectations of British gymnastics when the British came to India. Uh, that yoga that most people practice in the West is much more like British gymnastics than it is Indian yoga, which is much slower and more gentle and really designed to create a suppleness when you meditate, um, which is another kind of Aquarian form of wisdom access. Meaning if you really do develop a strong meditation practice, then you have access to the source, which is within you. Um, and these are sort of segue practices from the last age to the present age, which probably for most people here won't really take shape during their lifetime. You know, it's something that, um, you know, it's sort of like if you think about when Christ was born and when he was alive and how long it took Christianity to take hold in the world that, you know, there's probably a similar process going on right now. But what um, also is going on with this Jupiter-Saturn uh, conjunction is Jupiter and Saturn are these really opposing principles that are really powerful in human consciousness. And it's really important not to think of these planets as out there beaming down on us, making us do and think things. What you want to think of as far as astrology working, or especially in these uh, major conjunctions or spatial relationships between planets, you really want to think about, it's almost like the cosmos is our consciousness. That there's a one-to-one -one relationship to what's going on in the cosmos and how our consciousness is structured. Like we are a micro version of that macro. Each person's individual though. You know, each person's consciousness is structured differently. That's what astrology teaches you. And then each person's consciousness is going to react differently to those collective um, movements. So it's almost like everybody's a fine watch, but their, 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 their movement's different. And then these larger principles come in contact with each person's movement and changes them individually. Um, and that's why, I'll, that's why these sort of like, whoa, is... Is this happening? Is that happening? People always ask me that. And I always say, well, it is happening, but it means something different for every single person. That's why astrology is interesting. But collectively, having two planets that are so big and so significant move from Capricorn into Aquarius while this Aquarian transformation is happening is really significant. But what you're going to see in this, in this happening over the next couple of years is starts and stops, starts and stops. Jupiter is expansive. It is, uh, it, it's optimistic. It sees the future. It sees how things can be and how things are, are not really as interesting. It likes to chase a vision we all have that part of our consciousness, uh, rule Sagittarius that's optimistic and looking for fun, looking for a new adventure and looking for the next thing. And 
whatever this thing is, isn't as interesting as what might be. And so Sagittarian people, people who are ruled by Jupiter are like that. They're optimistic. They always are looking for adventure. They like to travel. I mean, I know that's ridiculous. sounds ridiculous, but it's true. They like to, and you know, these people can have inner adventures when they have strong Jupiter. Now, Saturn is actually the opposite principle of that. Saturn is restrictive. It's about brass tacks. It's about how are things exactly now as a result of my actions, not about my fantasies of who I might be or how I might be. Um, and also, um, what can I do to change things? Not fantasize about changing things, but actually put in the work. I always say that people's Saturn work is like crawling naked over crushed glass. It's not fun. It's not ephemeral. It's not easy, but it oftentimes determines the quality of their life. The efforts that people are willing to put in for their transformation, for their achievement, for other people really determines the quality of their life. There is very little chance um, in people's development. Most of people's development goes along exactly the efforts that they put in. That's what Saturn teaches you. It teaches you that in this lifetime, there are certain things you're only going to learn through your own efforts and you're only going to achieve through your own efforts. Nobody's going to give them to you. And more often than not, you, these efforts are going to result of an awareness of your deficits. So when you have Jupiter and Saturn coming together, um, it can be really confusing because you have the co combination of the optimism and the vision of Jupiter with the restriction and the limitation and the brass tacks of Saturn. So you have things like this. I'll give you an example of it. Um, so for those who are excited that, uh, that Donald Trump is no longer going to be president and are really optimistic about the possibility of Biden being president and maybe even what it means for Kamala Harris, who I'm 100% convinced is going to be the first uh, female president. Like, that's all really exciting, right? It's all super exciting. It's opportunities for progress. It's recognizing global warming. It's creating a new economy to address global warming. And... Um, and we're no longer dealing with the, with the limitations that were placed on our culture by there being an autocratic leader who didn't believe in anything except commerce, really. Right? So we're all really excited about that. Or a lot of people are. I am. But we're also simultaneously dealing with the consequences of having elected somebody like that. Right? So what's going on with the coronavirus? How incredibly poorly it was mismanaged more likely than not because Trump didn't have the intellectual capacity to understand the science. Like he most likely didn't just wasn't smart enough to, it wasn't that he was choosing not to is that he just probably couldn't grasp it. And this really shows something in our collective. It really shows something in the United States. It really shows something about a lot of people in the United States to whom facts intellect, um, discourse doesn't matter. Like that's really what it said that this man had been president. And so now here we are coming out of the election and we are in a 
pandemic that's only going to get worse. And it's probably going to get worse after Biden becomes president. Right. So it's going to take. So in our Jupiter sense, we're like, what a relief. Trump's no longer president. We got somebody who's reasonable and he's got smart people around him and, you know, it's, it's not fascist and it's not racist. Well, yeah, that's great. But the pandemic and the impact on the economy are going to be so difficult to uh, pull ourselves out of. And it's going to require a lot of thought and a lot of action and a lot of uh, wise behavior for a long time, right? So that's Jupiter and Saturn. That's like, it's happening right now, right? We're like, when you saw people take to the streets to celebrate the election, that was great. You know, some people might've spread coronavirus doing that, you know, and it's going to be quite a long time. You know, there's also the optimism of the vaccines. Well, it's going to be quite a long time till enough people are vaccinated that life returns to normal. It could be a year, it could be two years. You know, nobody yet knows what the impact of these vaccines are going to be, um, you know, and, and how people are going to react to them and, and how effective they actually are. They won't know until masses amounts of people are vaccinated. So while it's exciting to think that this is over because the vaccines are available, you know, regular people without without comorbidities or, or who aren't in danger of dying from uh, coronavirus, they're not going to be receiving their vaccines probably till next summer if they're lucky. So there is this sense of relief that we figured this out, that technology and uh, medicine has figured out a way to do this, but it's so far from over. And the worst parts of it probably haven't even come yet. So that's Jupiter and Saturn together. Jupiter goes, ah, I can see the future. It's a brighter future. It's a better future. Uh, it's a future that's more in line with my values and more aligned with uh, how I want the world to be. And then Saturn just goes, yeah, but how is it now? Because there's a, th this mess has been created and it's been created through our own actions. So it's going to take our own actions to get out of it. And while it's, 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 it's a great relief to be done with that administration and with that way of thinking and the people that it represents, the lingering effects need to be dealt with. It's not going to be magic. There's no going to be no magic. The vaccine's not going to be a magic pill. The consequences of these last four years are going to last a really long time. And it's probably even longer than these last four years. You know, it's probably the worldview of secular materialism that's dominated for hundreds of years and um, Keynesian economics and kind of seeing the world as a place of limited resources and, and an inanimate object. Um, and part of the transformation into the age of Aquarius is going to be sort of seeing a quantum reality where our thinking sort of is reflected in the way that we experience the world. And that's what we're experiencing with global warming as well, is that, you know, we didn't realize that all the carbon that we were burning was actually a result of photosynthesis and, and it was actually sun energy um, that had been put in the ground for, you know, millions and billions of years and that we could just burn it indefinitely and it would be fine. 
and we're finding out in fact that that's not true and whether the technology exists to reverse this remains to be seen but right now with probably the last impediment to really addressing this as a planet being the trump administration well they're going to have people who are willing to address this and talk about it and and create diplomacy and create laws about it and technologies but a lot of damage has been done just like a lot of been damage has been done to the health system and with a coronavirus and 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 the way that science is viewed in the country so it's a Ju very jupiter saturn time but one of the phenomenal things about aquarius the sign is that it really does have a sense of deep democracy meaning that everybody has an equal right to be accounted for and an equal responsibility to be part of the whole so what you're going to see is you're going to see cooperation you know i always found a really incredibly moving film um, and it sort of addresses this it was Apollo 13 and why Apollo 13 was an incredible movie. And I remember really being moved by it and sort of sobbing at the end of it when you, I don't know if you know the story, it's about uh, an Apollo mission that goes awry and they have to use all their collective intelligence to get these guys, three guys back to earth because otherwise they're going to die. And why the movie's so moving is because it's just everybody using their intelligence and their wherewithal to help these three men. That's the only goal. The only goal is that they survive. You know, whatever scientific aspirations they had for the mission are gone when they realize that these three men might die. And part of the age of Aquarius is everybody going to realize that nobody is outside the influence and the affect of global warming and it's not like rich people can live on islands or you know they probably can but um it's going to affect billions of people so it's going to require the efforts of billions of people to uh create a healthy biome and that's going to be something that's going to be a priority because everyone's becoming aware of the detriment that we've been to the planet and just how that's really starting to affect people's lives with wildfires and floods and all that sort of stuff so that's what jupiter and saturn in aquarius really represents and it's kind of heavy but we all have jupiter and saturn in us every single one of us we're, we're a microcosm of the macrocosm and so that brings us to uh Christmas. Because <laughs> I tell a story a lot. I think I'll tell it on this uh, podcast because it's just something to think about as the holiday approaches is, you know, Christianity has usurped a lot of native mythologies. It's, it's very interesting. Buddhism's done this too, where Buddhism in, in Thailand is super different from Buddhism in Tibet or Japan. Because wherever Buddhism's gone, it takes on the colors of the culture. And it uses symbols that the culture understands that were there before Buddhism got there. It's actually something that religions do if they are not just local, is they take on the colors of the places that they go. Um, 
it shows that a religion has a wherewithal that it's able to do that. Well, I, as a kid, I loved the Santa Claus myth. I just thought it was great. And I remember on many an occasion on Christmas coming out uh, on Christmas Eve and just feeling the presence of Santa Claus. Like, I, like he had just been back up the chimney and I just missed him. And I could feel his presence. I could almost hear his boots going back up through the chimney. And I think I got to be like 10 or 11. And my dad told me, hey, knock it off with the Santa Claus. Because <laughs> that's the last true believer. But as I got older and I studied religions, I really found out what that myth is about and why it worked and why it worked for me. And um, where it's originally from. And, you know, where it's originally from is really interesting. Because where uh, Santa Claus really came from was Lapland. And uh, in Lapland, they really did have shamanism. Shamanism was something that was used in a lot of places where it was super cold and hard to uh, survive. So in places where like there were crops growing and, and there, were, there was civilization built around farming, they didn't have shamanism because it wasn't necessary. You didn't need to have a mythology to overcome your environment that was supernatural. But in places where it was super cold, in super cold parts of North America, in, in Alaska, in Siberia, in Northern Europe, they had a shamanism that involved spirituality and having using supernatural forces to overcome the challenges of nature. And so in Lapland, what they had was, they had on um, the equinox, they had a ceremony where the spirit who granted all wishes came down through the fire hole on, uh, on uh, winter equinox eve. And the reason he did was to, and you know, most of the, uh, most of the wishes were to survive the winter because it was really cold and brutal and hopefully that there'd be some hunt and there wouldn't be disease and there'd been a, and, and that there'd be enough food to get through to the spring. And that really is the Santa Claus myth. It's really the spirit who comes down the hole and grants all wishes. And in our culture, it's like gives all the presents that you wanted, <laughs> that you got mad in and you got, you know, a new football and you got, um, you know, monopoly and some clothes. But that's just an archetypal reality that has descended, that has come with us into this culture because a lot of us have parts of our consciousness that are a lot more primal than we actually realize. And I think the uh, Christians who, who took on this myth probably realized that and that it would keep people engaged in a certain way. Um, and so there's another part of it too, which is, which is um, I'll mention it. I don't know how much I, I how much I, I invest in it, but you know, um, they have mushrooms in the north. They grow in the north, uh, Amanita muscaria, that are red and white, which are the colors of Santa Claus's outfit. They're red and white, and also the balls that you see on Christmas trees, the red balls. The, the, what people suppose is that, you know, these Amanita muscaria, which 
they're not psychedelic like psilocybin are psychedelic. They sort of more put you in a stupor than, than they are psychedelic. But uh, they grew underneath uh, pine boughs. Like that's where those things grow is they grow underneath pine trees. And the, uh, the flying reindeer that are also part of Santa's myth is that the reindeer eat the Amanita muscaria on purpose. Like they eat it on purpose. If they find it, they eat it. They like the stupor. They like the high. And in the places where it was used ritually, it was known that if you got the, uh, I'm trying to remember what the chemical is. I can't recall it at this moment, but it's the chemical that's in Amanita muscaria, those, those red and white mushrooms that everywhere I was on the East Coast this past week, they had Amanita muscaria um, um, uh, candles and lights. I mean, it was such a part of the aesthetic of East Coast Christmas. And so, it, so in, the, in the mythology of Santa Claus, where he also has the reindeer that fly, it's because the, the reindeer eat Amanita muscaria just for the fun of it. Like they just eat it and they, they fly around and they, and they just lie around and, and out of their minds. And then, so you also see, um, Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer, who's, which is another reminder of this mushroom. So what is, what is funny about this is, is all of this has been appropriated by Christianity, even though these things are, you know, they're kind of like secular Christianity because what they are is they're native religions. They're native religions of the Northern Europeans. And so when you think about it this week, when you think about Christmas, when you think about this star on top of a tree, which is really about a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in Pisces in 4 and 6 BC, that's, what, that's why you've always been putting a star on top of your Christmas tree is because it's, it's remembering that great conjunction in 2000, uh, in 2000 years ago you know, in four, between four and six BC, that looked like a big star. And you're going to be able to see this on the 21st. So go out and look at it. You know, look at what is known as the Star of Bethlehem. And, you know, also think about this Christmas myth. Think about Santa Claus and the flying reindeer and the Amanita muscaria and the spirit who comes down your fire hole and grants all wishes. And think about, you know, think about what wishes you have. Think about maybe the wishes for the new year, uh, the wishes for those you love, uh, the wishes for the world, and know that that is a normal thing to be happening in the darkest hour, which we're headed into in the next few days, is, is how do we, it's a very Jupiterian thing to imagine what things are gonna be like when they're lighter. And it's a very Saturnian thing to have to fight through the winter to survive. And you could hear this understanding of this mythology in Biden talking about a dark winter and Fauci talking about a dark winter and how kind of scary and ominous it is. But in our ancestors, it was always a dark winter. It was always the days were short and they were cold and the opportunities to survive 
were challenging and fleeting in those short days. So really contemplate that, you know, um, really contemplate that in the, uh, in the, in the days to come and in the celebrations you see and realize that people are, um, celebrating in this primal way, even if they don't realize that they are, and they always have, and probably so have you. And I know that when I went out in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve or it was then Christmas morning and there were presents out and I really felt that the spirit that had dropped off those presents had just gone back up the fire hole. Um, it was so thrilling and it was so exciting and it was so profound. And in a lot of ways, it was probably my first mystical experiences. So to sum up, the three Magi, they were astrologers. The star of Bethlehem, it's a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, just like we're having uh, on the 18th, which is in how many days from this? The 18th, oh, it's going to be Friday night. Check it out. See what the three Magi saw, the three astrologers. And then think about the Christmas myth the spirit that comes down the fire hole so you can survive the winter. Think about how you're going to survive this winter and how lucky you are that you have the resources to do it and feel grateful and celebrate the um, equinox any way that you feel is appropriate. All right. Thanks a lot. I hope everybody enjoyed this one. It was a little rambling, but, you know, it's the holiday. I'm feeling very Jupiterian. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.